Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media, and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I'm your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. On today's show, <laughs> we have comedy writer Drew Johnson uh, and mountaineer Chris Bombardier. They join Amy and I for a discussion about the making of the final summit, Bloodstream Media's podcast exploring what it means to chase a dream, achieve a dream, and realize then that the work has only just begun. So the finale good. to the first season came out on Monday, July 4th. Happy American Independence Day, everybody. And so Amy and I thought it would be fun to have the guys here join us on Bloodstream. That is true. I did think it would be fun. And now that it's already happened, I feel really comfortable saying it was fun. It was legitimately yeah. fun. It was legitimately fun. And you'll get to hear that and weigh in yourself and see if you think it's fun in just a little bit. <laughs> uh, we've also got news. The European authorities have recommended conditional marketing authorization for Roctavian Biomarin's pharmaceutical uh, Biomarin Pharmaceuticals one-time gene therapy for adults with severe hemophilia A. What does that mean? We'll discuss that and what may happen next. That's that coming up in just news. a little bit. Yep, big news. Yes, big it news. was. The celebration of life for Val Bias was held at the Hemophilia Memorial within the AIDS Memorial Grove up in San Francisco late last month. I was there and we'll share a few moments and thoughts from that event. And Amy and I will also talk about how rare disease drugs change lives. <laughs> just a little lighthearted, easy breezy topic yeah. for you there to yeah, just off the intro. <laughs> for sure, just a couple bullets, <laughs> just a few bullets. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll wrap this loaded episode with the latest from The Well, led by Jessica Lauren Richmond, this time on the topic of aging and changing. We have got all of that and even more on today's episode. Welcome to Bloodstream. Listeners, as always, thank you for joining Patrick and me here on Bloodstream. We so appreciate each and every one of you. And if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes of Bloodstream can be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. And as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, if you have questions for Patrick and myself, ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Also, we mentioned it at the end of the episode, but it wouldn't hurt to mention it here. We always are casting for something. So if you would like to share your story in it's one true. of our films, one of our podcasts, reach out to us. You can find us on social media and all the things. Again, email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com if you'd like to share your stories. Awesome. Uh, and as Amy said, you're also welcome to contact either of us on the socials or wherever you would like. But get involved if you want to share. We're always casting things. So please let us know. And listeners, I also want to remind you that the Bloodstream Podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website. You may have heard of it, bleedingdisorders.com where you, good listener, can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds. Amy Board, I'm for it. And are you dedicated are. more than ever. I thought ever. maybe today was going to be the day you weren't. No, still in support of that idea <laughs> all the way. Uh, and they are dedicated more than ever 
to their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. And again, you can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. Thanks, Takeda. PJL, how you feeling? How you feeling? I've I've COVID. <laughs> so I'm feeling COVID-y. Oh, That's how I'm feeling. So much COVID-y. I will say, listeners, uh, uh, I've heard Patrick on the COVID uh, scale, if you will, the past couple of days, and he sounds great today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering how many people a few minutes in here were already like, what's going on with the voice there? But yeah, if you hear a little something, something, that's that's the vid right there, folks. The vid mm. is live. Um, and it's been all right. You know, it's been about coming up on a week. Um, the first couple of days were particularly rough. And yeah. then since then, it's a little bit of ebb and flow and symptoms shifting and like, oh, that wasn't there. Now it is. Oh, that was not too bad. Now that's pretty pronounced. And oh, that was big. And now it's gone. Now it's back again. So there's been a little bit of a funky sort of uh, journey that way. And for better or worse, Natalie and Vivian are on the East Coast. I was actually supposed to be with them this past weekend for the 4th and my brother's birthday and hanging out with mom and doing fun family things. But uh, me and the vid instead had a date here at the house. (laughs) And Amy, get this. So my dog, Russell, sometimes makes uh, audio cameos on the podcast. Um, we had him set up with his his sitter when I go away. He stays with this, this woman, Kim, who runs a small business, and it works out really well. And she, I'm like, all right, well, once it was clear, I dropped him off. And because I'm doing all my things ready to go, the morning I'm supposed to leave. Oh, I got the vid, not going anywhere. So I was like, all right, well, maybe day one, I'll leave him there. I'm kind of, I'm a little rough. Uh, well, maybe day two, I'll pick him up early. It'd be kind of nice to see him. Well, day two, I get these pictures from Kim. He's like, there's a bunch of pictures with him and this <laughs> other dog who have become soulmates. <gasps> and these photos, I mean, there's photos of the two of them each up on their back legs, arm, front legs wrapped around <laughs> one another, like hugging. Like, And Russell does hug. <laughs> and, and so I'm seeing these pictures and I'm sending them to Natalie and I'm like, I can't go get him now. I think he's just going <laughs> to... I think he's just going to be like a couple miles away from me for the next few days for money. And that's actually the best idea. So so he stayed there. I stayed here and it was what it was. But I'm doing all right. I'm thankful I'm vaxxed and, and got my booster and all of that. I can only imagine what this would be like had that not been true. So all in all, Amy... Um, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Do you have like a, a communicable disease or something you can talk about? Uh, no, only that I started my period literally 10 minutes before we started this episode. And and <laughs> if any women are listening on the podcast or any men that uh, live with women that understand, it was like being hit by a bus. I was fine this morning. And literally it's like being mm. hit by a bus. So maybe mm. maybe we evened ourselves out. Maybe we're like in the same general health space at the moment. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I'm comparing menstruation to COVID though when I say that. So I think it's that's the gonna same get me some thing. emails. <laughs> oh, you're gonna get the emails too now. Oh. So mm-hmm. we're hanging on. We're hanging yeah. on. It was also strange. I had to go to the offices last night when nobody was around to pick up this equipment because I didn't have it here at home to record. And I felt I was like a COVID ninja. You know, I was like coming in after hours, no one's there picking stuff up, spraying things down. I was like, this is a weird, I don't like it at all. 
Yeah, I was like, this is yeah. so dumb, but you know, yeah. it is what it is. It is what it is. So PGL, let's get into our uh, discussion topics. But first, um, this next mm. segment is brought to you by Genentech. Always striving to further support the hemophilia community, Genentech offers several resources to assist patients and caregivers. Their clinical education managers, or CEMs, are part of your hemophilia community. They have years of nursing and clinical experience, offer one-on-one support, and can help answer answer your hemophilia-related questions. CEMs do not provide medical advice. If you have questions about your medical condition, contact your healthcare provider. Get one-on-one support from your local CEM throughout your entire hemophilia journey at www.talktoacem.com. Thanks, Genentech. Thanks, CEMs. Thank you, CEMs. And we will have that information in the program notes. Um, I personally would love to ask you about how... The celebration mm. of life um, for Val was, it was at the AIDS Grove, which is just... It was at the AIDS Grove. Perfect. And just kind of want to, I don't know, ask you your thoughts, your impressions. What was it like? Yeah. It was special. And for listeners who uh, were with us at the beginning of the year, we did that tribute episode to Val and played audio from various interviews. Um, Val was born in Buffalo, but spent a lot of his formative years as a young adult in San Francisco, and he ran camp, in the YMCA in, camps, yeah, yeah, and cut his a, teeth a, a, there. I mean, big time. And that camp director part of him never really left. So San Francisco is a fitting backdrop as a city. And then in 2016, the Hemophilia Memorial was introduced as part of the AIDS Memorial Grove. It was a big deal for World AIDS Day 2016. Val on behalf of NHF, Kimberly Hogstad on behalf of HFA, Carl Wexler on behalf of COT. Jeannie White-Ginder and John Cunningham, the executive director of the AIDS Grove, were all partnered in, in bringing this to life. Um, and I was, a, I was a big part of some of that. So I can just say it was a lot of work and it wouldn't be there without Val. So having the memorial be where this took place inside this gorgeous grove in the city of San Francisco, getting to hear from guys like... Uh, Z was one of the speakers. Ben Martin was there, not one of the speakers, but he also spoke about camp experiences while he and I were chatting. Dwayne, who we had, Dwayne Whitus, who we've had here on the podcast. And uh, he was there playing music and singing songs and telling camp stories. So um, that was really special. There were a number of great speakers. Who else was there? Mark Skinner spoke. Um, Randy Curtis hosted the, Mm. the formal. There was a Saturday thing at the Grove and there was a Friday night thing that happened um, for anybody who's already in town, I spent the Friday night thing primarily talking to Langston, Val's son, about basketball. And I learned that while he, and I knew he liked basketball, uh, but that has picked up big time. Val loved basketball. So I was used to talking to him and actually I showed Langston my last texts with his dad Aww. were about the emergence of Gary Payton II on the Warriors, who for basketball fans became quite a, a figure this past season in their championship year. And Val was, of course, a Warriors fan. So it was really, really sweet. Um, the Yeah, the venue was perfect. John Cunningham was a gregarious host on behalf of the Grove. Randy did a beautiful job leading the and the hosting the, the event itself. And I think Robin Byron, Val's brother, though I didn't speak with him too much, but just from observing, I feel like the, the family got what maybe they needed or or could have expected to get from this kind of an event. 
um, and celebration. There was probably in the vicinity of 60-ish people there um, and a nice people from different parts of Val's life. The speakers spoke, it was very well organized to different parts of Val's life, different impacts he had. So it just all felt very fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, though I, I must say that the person who stole the whole thing though was Langston. He had remarks on Saturday about his dad and his experience and was also going off the cuff. He had written <laughs> remarks, but then would like add additional color and context in real time <laughs> and with such poise that I was just sort of blown away. And I'll, I'll just mention as a capper to this, Amy, um, there has been a, a college fund that was established for Langston. Um, Val's death was premature and uh, Langston's college fund and college support for his life is kind of the, one of the bigger, I think, ongoing considerations of the family, so to speak. So uh, Kate Muir has helped set this up. And if you're interested in how you could support the 529 College Fund for Langston Bias, you can email Kate. Her email address is kate, M as in Mary, M as in Mary, U-I-R, at gmail.com. We can put a link to that in the program notes as well. So Amy, it was really, really sweet, fitting, appropriate, sad, of course, also healing. There were people Mm -hmm. there who I felt like I really needed to kind of see, hear Mm -hmm. from, hug, say hello to, and haven't had the chance in the six plus months that have gone by since Val died. So that that it, it felt to me like it allowed a certain part of my process to mm-hmm. complete and another part of it to begin. And I'm thankful for that. Oh, that's great. That's really great. I love that man. I, I'm, I'm so glad that that happened. He, he was such um, an integral part of a community and a movement um, in our bleeding disorder space. And to have that you know, proper honoring in a in a place that's really sacred to us and something that he, you know, was so integral in creating and advocating mm-hmm. for and pushing. It's so meaningful. And I I find myself just missing him, missing him dearly and um just aching, you know, that we didn't get the chance, you know, on the, you know, back end of the pandemic to be able to you know, see him and have a conversation one more time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. So uh, thank you everybody who helped to make that happen. I'm glad I could be there. Yeah. And we love you, Val. And we'll, you'll you'll we come up again love on you, this Val. podcast, no doubt. You really will. Uh, very fun to have his voice um, on that memorial podcast uh, that we had. And I, I hope we will hear from him again. <laughs> Yeah, and such great feedback to that too. And just not to spend too much yes. time here. I may have even mentioned this previous on the episode, but you know, so Val, Val's first wife, Katie, who contracted HIV from Val when they did not realize he had it, which is unfortunately not an uncommon story in our community of people with their partners. Um, but there were people from Katie's life who have listened to the podcast. And one person in particular who sent some feedback about how there, there was like not another way in which they could engage with Val's passing and what it meant for them and what his life after Katie went on to be. And I just thought, what a neat, what a neat thing! Like yeah. this, this, this person, yes. you know, yes. can can benefit because we yes. put this together. So I'm, I'm very yes. pleased that we did that. Yeah, me too. Me too. All right, little bit of a tough transition, but we're going to take a bit of a left <laughs> turn now and talk yeah. about this news that. 
Roctavian recommended for use in EU as first gene therapy for heme A. That's the title of an article by Lindsay Shapiro in Hemophilia News Today. And as mentioned at the top, the European authorities have recommended conditional marketing authorization. So that's the specific stage we're at. For Roctavian, also known as Valacoctagenicataroxapoxavacavaca. <laughs> You'll recall our discussion <laughs> of this previously, but it's mm. Biomarin's uh, gene mm-hmm. therapy for adults with severe hemophilia A. This positive decision from the Committee for Medicinal Products for Human Use, acronym is CHMP, makes Roctavian the first gene therapy for hemophilia A to be recommended for European approval. CHMP's opinion will now be passed on to the European Commission. That's the regulatory body that has the authority to approve medicines in the European Union typically consistent with the opinion of CHMP, the final decision from the European Commission is expected in the next few months. So let me pause there and say, Amy Board, what are your thoughts on this uh, bit of a blockbuster moment for our community? You're going to be so mad at me that this is my take. The acronym (laughs) CHMP, it looks like chimp, you know, like chimpanzee, and I can't unsee it. Like, is that how they say it? Chimp? You know, like chimp. Mm, chimp. It might be. I, you know, I was thinking during the uh, the talk to a CEM ad read a few minutes ago, Amy. <laughs> I was thinking like we should probably find some sort of game that we can play where yes. we just have a whole bunch of acronyms. Yes. What do they mean? What could they yes. mean? How could we rebrand them? There's yes. so many. They're a lot of fun. Yes. So I I'm I'm not at all. I don't hate the chimp take. I think the chimp take is very very appropriate. Yeah. Is that your complete take? Is that is that really all? No, that kind of no. It was from just like news? as you were like reading and I was reading along with you. I just felt myself get sadder and sadder because I'm like, this is what I'm gonna say. Unfortunately, like this is gonna be my take. <laughs> Can I? Okay, now I'm gonna say something that might be inappropriate. Okay. You know what? That take. I think that's the period talking. <laughs> Anything. I was like, you know what? If I was like, if it was any other day of the month, I might have had like a really <laughs> educated take about this very important news in our community. It is. It's important, but real talk. Sometimes what strikes you is the chimp acronym because, hey, you are where you are. Um, if I anybody do want to from it. the EU is listening and they do pronounce it chimp, will you let me know? Now I'm, I'm curious. Is it chimp? Do you say that? Do you say yeah, C-H-M-P? It's a, these are really important questions. Mailbag <laughs> epilepsymedia.com or PM Amy on LinkedIn about Chimp. We, we really need to know about this. It's very I'm important. I'm so bummed. This is a podcast, like not a video. Listeners, you should have seen the, the very earnestly serious face that Patrick just had of like, these are the tough questions. <laughs> earnest. He was so earnest. <laughs> uh, I should mention as well, the article does go on to state uh, two things of additional global interest. Biomarin anticipates the European approval may help provide additional patient access to the therapy through named patient sales in Middle Eastern and African countries and could facilitate additional marketing, or excuse me, additional market registrations. That is So exciting. there's a bit of a ripple effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you know, we don't, I think, traditionally anyway, often hear about Middle Eastern and African countries being right. um, 
so early in the uh, you know adoption list and when there's new products. So that's kind of exciting to me. And then lastly, and maybe most of relevance to the majority of our audience, a similar application to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is expected to be resubmitted because, as we know, there have been previous applications that were denied resubmitted by the end of September, according to Biomarin. So we're, we're not too far out from when that application will be resubmitted to the FDA. And I think, and this actually may be based on things we shared here previously, Amy, I think it'll be three, four months maybe after that, where we will then hear a response from the FDA. So beginning of yeah. next year here in the U.S. Yeah. And again, I uh, Keep listening to Bloodstream. We will always um, have updates about this. This is very big for our community. And this is a big step. This is something um, for us to kind of watch and see how it unfolds. And yeah, excited for um, patients in in the EU. And um, the future looks bright for the bleeding disorder community. It really does. Um, It really does. It really does. And I think... um, at, at times, this work uh, that we do here at Believe Limited can feel, you know, a bit like like any job, you know, just uh, slapping out deliverables and those types of things. But every once in a while, you kind of are reminded about the incredible work at the forefront of what we do, which truly is how science is moving um, towards, you know, <laughs> I think really changing people's lives. And it's it's very exciting and it's very exciting to be a part of and it's kind of incredible to watch, I think, unfold. You know, I'm glad you said that. So let's let's use that to actually chat a bit more about how science and, and these moments, people's lives get changed. You, you were sharing a little bit with me yesterday, Amy, not related to hemophilia, another rare disease that, that we do some work within, but you had an experience with someone yesterday who you had experienced, or, or recently, you told me yesterday, recently, and you had experienced that person a while back, and there was a bit of a night and day sort of, well, you tell the story. Well, we worked with a, a patient that has a very rare uh, genetic uh, disorder, another mutation that affects um red blood cells, and uh, we saw a bit of a before and after, and it, it took it took us back a little bit. We we were able to uh, meet with this patient, uh, I guess, in the fall of last year, and hear her story. And she was um, she was lethargic. She was tired. Um, she spoke really evenly and very slowly and quietly. Lovely, absolutely wonderful. Very excited to be there. But it was just kind of the nature of her cadence. And we had her back um, on the show, um, I guess, just within the last month, so a few weeks ago. I mean, she was, I mean, she was full of energy, and she just her eyes kind of sparkled, and it was, it was, it was really exciting. It was really exciting to see. I, I think how drugs and science can change lives. And we don't see that a lot. I think we're very cynical um, because Mm. a lot of things just kind of like mask symptoms. And some of the work that's being done in biotech in particular um, truly has life-saving potential. And it's very exciting. And um, it's something that I think is, it takes so much time and so much patience. but it's something that, I don't know, it was just incredible to witness. It, it really was. 
Well, I think when you have a moment with a person benefiting from a therapy and benefiting from all of the years, decades, however many hundreds of people in, in the working chain it took over that period of time to finally have a therapy, the end goal at the, at the end of the day is for that therapy to change a person's life. And you're right, it can be easy to sort of forget that part. And we hear this, we hear this from the, the, the biotech companies, the pharmaceutical manufacturers. It's why they bring patients in to speak to the people at the plant and speak to the people who are behind the scenes to help refocus on this is why it matters. Because to your point, everyone's job at certain points is a job. And it's important to have those moments where you sort of recenter around, oh, right, but we work for a company that makes life-sustaining, life-optimizing drugs for yeah. people. This job's really important. And when there are those moments where you can actually see someone at a different stage of their journey, where there was nothing for them, and then there's something for them, or there was something minimal, and then there's something more significant, there's all sorts of, and this is a frustrating thing in what we do, Amy, there's a lot of uh, regulation around what can and cannot be said by yeah. a patient who has taken a drug and a company's supporting that and marketing. And I get it, and I'm generally, I generally appreciate it, but it sometimes only makes it that much harder to appreciate that these things do have such incredible impacts on the patients yeah. that are designed to serve when everything goes you know, well. Yeah, I agree. I really agree. Um, so anyway, on, on this podcast, we really, uh, we celebrate that. We celebrate um, the science aspect of it. We, we celebrate clinical trials. We celebrate uh, being a part of it as a patient community, educating, advocating for ourselves. You know, I think the hemophilia community is a leader in that. I have always felt that. Um, I've been around chronic disease for a long time and now getting into more um, specific targeted rare genetic disorders um, it's something that is, it has been started by patient advocates, started by a bunch of caregivers and patients who are, have been tireless um, in advocating for their children and for their family members. And I just think it's a neat thing to be a part of. And when you see it actually in the world of how it affects a patient, it's, it's really difficult to think anything else other than like, this is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, it is. The Bloodstream Podcast is brought to you in part by a new educational gene therapy resource from CSL Bering called Heme Evolution. As gene therapy research continues for people living with hemophilia B, CSL Bering has developed an educational website called Heme Evolution that allows visitors to explore the advancing science around gene therapy and the potential to address unmet needs in some people with this condition. Gene therapy is an innovative approach to treatment for a medical condition by introducing a new fully functioning or working gene into the body or by turning off or changing the gene that is causing the condition. For people with hemophilia B, gene therapy has the potential to sustain blood clotting ability. To learn more, check out www.hemevolution.com. Thank you again to CSL Bearing and remember to check out www.hemevolution.com by clicking on the link in the program notes. All right, now let's move into our interview, Amy, of Drew Johnson and Chris Bombardier about the making of The Final Summit. 
All right. I would now like to welcome our guests for today, Chris Bombardier and Drew Johnson, the writers of The Final Summit, a bloodstream media podcast made possible with support from Tremo Pharmaceuticals and Genentech. In January of 2018, Chris Bombardier, as you may have heard, became the first person with severe hemophilia to complete the seven summits. It was the end of one adventure and the start of a whole new chapter in Chris's life. And the Final Summit podcast is a show hosted by Chris for adventurers, bleeders, and anyone who's ever chased a dream. The seven-episode season began May 22nd on the fifth anniversary of Chris's historic moment standing on the top of Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, and it concludes on America's birthday, July 4th. That's the final episode when it comes out. How about that? Landmarks at the beginning and at the end. Uh, happy birthday, America. Congratulations, Chris, Drew, producer, director, Keith, in the booth back there, and, and everybody who helped bring the final summit to life. So let's get your voices in here first before I start with questions. Chris, Drew, welcome. Hello. How are you guys? Hey, Patrick. I'm good. Good to be here. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> um Drew, let, I want to start with you. I'm, I'm, I'm really psyched that you can join us, and I'm, I'm excited to introduce you in a bit of your background story to our audience. Listeners, I've known Drew for over 15 years. He's a fantastic actor, comedian, writer, performance teacher, and he brought a ton to this show. So, Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Yeah, I can't believe it's been over 15 years, but it's true. <laughs> it's crazy. It's true. It's true. Uh, this has actually happened. And Chris, I want to start with you and talking about the initial inspiration for the show. So when and how did you know that there was more to be told and more stories to share from your experiences climbing the seven summits? Yeah, honestly, I think uh, as we were putting together Bomb of Your Blood um, and, and just realizing the fact that you can only fit so much into uh, an 80-minute documentary, um, you know, and this was seven years of my life. And um, just kind of, you know, thinking back to all of those experiences and things that I learned and maybe didn't even realize I learned until much further down the road. Um, I just thought it'd be really interesting to kind of dive deeper into into some of the climbs that we barely even mentioned on on in the movie. You know, like, I think five of the climbs we just kind of like brushed over. And I was like, man, there's some pretty epic things that happen on each of those mountains. So um, that's why I think we we got excited about putting this project together. Chris, um, it's Amy, by the way. Hi, everyone. I'm here too. Drew, hello. Chris, hello. Psyched to be here. Um, Chris, what are some of the key messages and stories or points that you wanted to get across in this series as you were thinking about it? Um, you know, it, it's been interesting since, you know, Bombardier Blood came out. Um, it's been really wonderful to see uh, what people have taken away from the film. Um, and one of the things that kept coming up was, you know, we, we touched upon, you know, struggles with mental illness, depression, anxiety in the film. And it, it, it's funny, every time I watch the, the, the film back, I'm like, man, I wish I had the language I have today to like, you know, share back then in that film. Cause I think it would have been more poignant to a lot of the people watching the film. Um, Cause it's clearly, it was clearly impactful. So I think that's one of the things I really wanted to touch upon was, you know, get really more, you know, have a deeper discussion about uh, the challenges that like hemophilia specifically has had on my, you know, anxiety and depression, my mental, my mental health. So I think that was a big point of it. Um, and then, you know, this struggle with uh, how to be, you know, so-called man in society with, with a bleeding disorder when, when those two things are kind of, confounding uh, issues, you know, like um, 
a lot of things that you're you're told with a bleeding disorder is like not to be, you know, physically active or not, you know, do these certain things. And like, how does that impact you mentally as well? So, and then, you know, obviously for me, like the big point is always bringing it back to health equity and like, uh, how do we open up this discussion even more deeply than the, the film did about, you know, the inequities in care around the world, especially since most of my climbs took me to countries that had less access to care than me. So I thought it was just a really good opportunity to like really tackle all of those different topics uh, in a more in-depth way, which was cool. So Drew, you don't have hemophilia or a bleeding disorder, which is cool. We love you anyway. <laughs> Thank you. But this also wasn't your first foray into bleeding disorders content. You were part of the original cast of my web series, Stop the Bleeding. And so we'll dive into the final summit here in just a moment, but share with the audience from your perspective, what was your role in Stop the Bleeding? And how do you, I'm curious, this is a question Patrick wrote selfishly (laughs) for Patrick. And how do you describe the show and experience you had on it for several years and seasons to people that you talk to? Sure, yeah, um, yeah, so I, you know, I uh, stop the bleeding was the the web series that we made. Uh, it was like twenty eleven. I mean, I can't even remember when it was. All I remember is years ago. Years oh, yeah, ago, about that. Yeah, yeah. And I remember looking at. Uh, there's still some photos of it up on IMDb, and I had a, the biggest beard for the first few episodes. And I was like, "Why did I have such a big beard?" And I was like, "Oh, right, because I needed to look a little older." That's how long ago it was. Um, but uh, so, stop the bleeding was a was a comedy that kind of was you know, about a not-for-profit and about, like, um, a bleeding disorder community and uh, a mockumentary-style, uh, uh, very fun um, web series that that Patrick wrote. And uh, that was actually, honestly, my introduction to the hemophilia community and the bleeding disorder community. And when... When people ask me what I'm doing, I'm like, "Oh, it's a, it's a, um, it's a series about hemophilia," and they're always like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> I have to be like, "No, it's a comedy. It's a comedy. Like, just so you know, it's it's, it's funny. <laughs> That's the first and foremost. It's funny." Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I didn't realize was how much of a community the hemophilia and the bleeding disorder community is until we shot something down in I think it was D.C. and it was a big. Um, convention. And I remember mm-hmm. we were shooting down there and just waiting down there. And there's all these like, uh, these like teens that were part of this community and they all recognized me and Seth. And I was kind of like, what is going on? Like, I didn't realize how tight of a community this was. And I don't get recognized <laughs> unless it's on like the subway in Brooklyn and it's an improv kit. That's the only time I would ever get in, in like, uh, recognized. <laughs> so this was, it was very, uh, surreal uh, to to see that th- how like much of an impact and how much reach we were having amongst this community um, down in uh, when we were like shooting down in DC. It was really it was really impressive and um, kind of eye opening. For sure, yeah, it's definitely a, a a tightly knit community. So then, what attracted you to working on such a different project here with the final summit? Sure. Well, you know, the thing that I really loved about this about a Christmas story uh, in general too is you know I come from. I, I don't come from a background with bleeding disorders or um, or hemophilia, but I do come from a background of a lot of uh, mountaineers. Uh, not a lot. My dad was a mountaineer. He was a big mountaineer. He um, grew up in Florida, uh, and then uh, so you would not expect him to love mountains. There are no mountains there. But when he graduated college, he moved to Seattle uh, primarily because of the mountains, um, and he just wanted to climb uh, up there. Uh, since then, you know, he's summited Mount Rainier, I think, like 11 times, Mount Baker, like 14 or 15. He just loved climbing mountains. 
and I grew up hiking and being outdoors. And um, the other thing that I really loved about this project is it's not just about having a bleeding disorder. It's also about touching on a lot of like mental health stuff and the importance of being outside and masculinity. And um, I think it honestly reminded me a lot of why my dad got into climbing. I mean, my dad is a is like five foot three. He's a very short uh, guy. And he was always like trying to prove that he was more of a man by like climbing mountains. And I could see a little bit of that in this story. And um, and it was like, it, it kind of brought me home and, and reminded me a lot of what I loved about uh, hiking when I was younger and uh, why I get into fitness and um, everything like that. I, I thought it touched on a lot more than just... Uh, just a bleeding disorder and just the hemophilia aspect, it touched on things that that can inf- that, that can like um, affect a people a, a, across all medical spectrums um, and make sure that it really touches home for everybody. Drew, tell us a little bit about the structure of the show, which I think was so unique and such a wonderful avenue for the storytelling. But tell me a little bit about the structure of the show and the approach to storytelling that you, Chris, and the team took. Yeah, so when I got brought on board, um, uh, Patrick and Chris had already kind of come up with this idea that basically every episode was a different mountain, and then every episode also had a theme, and those kind of connected to the two. And I think that was the key, the the, kind of the key thing that unlocked it, right, is like, you know, we're talking about Kilimanjaro, but we're also talking about masculinity, or we're talking about Carson's Pyramid, but we're also talking about connecting to global health initiatives. And there was always kind of an in that connected these um, to the other, you know, like... uh, you know, like the 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 climb in Russia. Um, this one was even like this kind of came about after we had I, I, after I had gotten brought on board. But there was the idea of like, oh, Mount Elbrus in Russia. Just look at the world right now. Russia is also you know doing a very geopolitical uh, war right now against Ukraine. That obviously touches on medical access. One of the big things that we wanted to do was make sure that. Every episode had stories about the mountains, but also made sure that we got experts talking about these like topics because this isn't just a podcast about mountaineering. This is a podcast about uh, global initiatives and like connecting us all and like what this means to be human. So the structure basically was we always wanted like fun story about the mountain, not not always fun for Chris in particular because you know once he got fell off a bike and really impaled his leg, so that's not fun. But it's fun for the listener, I guess, you know, to listen to. Um, but it's like <laughs> uh, like fun story about mountaineering, and then all of a sudden a honest discussion with a lot of experts about uh, that um, that topic that we kind of dive into, and then close it out with like how does that tie back to the mountain? How can we tell this as a story. And one of the things that I like in my storytelling is always um, setting up something, obviously, and then finding ways that all that all connects. It's kind of a, a core tenant of uh, a lot of the stuff that I learned in improv, a lot of the stuff that I've learned in storytelling is, you know, making sure not every, like, making sure everything's tied together and making sure you can set something up and tie it back together and nothing is waste. Nothing is just there for the story. Uh, or just there for the fun of it. It's all there for a, a greater purpose. And I think that's kind of what we wanted to do with these episodes. What was it like working together, Chris and Drew? I know you guys met on this project. I, I had the the honor of hanging out with Chris while you guys were recording this, and he was uh, very excited to work with you, Drew. So, Bomb, what was it like working with Drew as a writer? Uh, it, was, it was so much fun. Um, first of all, like, I think we really connected about the mountaineering part uh, and hearing stories of Drew's dad. But, um, 
I just felt like he brought a clarity to what I was trying to say that I, I never could have done on my own um, in, in a way of like connecting the stories that I, I could maybe imagine in my mind, but I just couldn't put the words together in the right way. Um, so it was really fun. He would, he would send back these edits and I'm like, yes, that's, that's what I was trying to say. Um, and you just made it sound amazing. So it was really fun to like just throw out my thoughts and ideas and then have him come back with this like brilliantly worded and, you know, engaging, you know, paragraph or whatever. And I'm like, wow, that's magic. Um, so it was wonderful. Maybe that's all that we need. We all need just professional writers to just follow us around. I think so. Sure. That'd be very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I think honestly, what we really need is just someone outside of ourselves. Because I've always found it that like whenever I say, when mm-hmm. I I, f- I feel very good at helping other people like with their stories, and then you're like, oh, we can just edit this out. This doesn't this isn't necessary. We can move this over here. We can just do this. And then all of a sudden, I look at my own work and I'm like, but I can't cut any of it. And I just need like like a friend needs to be like, no, get rid of this. Like you don't need this. And I'm like, oh, right, 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 right. But it's so much easier to see something when you're outside when you're outside of it and i think that is honestly such a key part of collaboration and like you know this auteur theory that's one person can do it all it's like that's true but like you can get a lot more stuff done at a lot better quality if you've got people who can work on it together and can like cross check and make sure it works you know it's, it's a team effort so i think that's also a huge thing chris one of the moments that comes up in the final summit uh it has you being introduced to, uh, we'll say, uh, a bit of a culinary adventure. I'm going to play a little audio from the show, and then we'll come back and I'll ask you a question about it. On the final night of the trek, the locals went out hunting and trapping for food, and they returned with two animals. The first, I later found out, was a tree kangaroo. And the second, I never got confirmation of, but I believe it was an echidna, which looks like a cross between a hedgehog and an anteater. It was surreal. We were offered a taste of these two animals, and I decided, hey, when else would I get to try tree kangaroo? So I gave it a shot. Would I do it again? No. So, Chris, I'm curious, what are some of the other surprising culinary experiences that you had across the seven summits? Oh, man. Um, I feel like tree kangaroo, like, is definitely top of the list. Like, it's a very unique, uh, interesting experience. Um, and I wouldn't say any of them were like as crazy as that. Um, but I do find that like eating in different places around the world and with different cultures, like really tells you a lot about those places. Uh, you know, I remember one of my first climbs on Aconcagua and they're doing the, the traditional asado where they're like grilling the meat on the open wood flames uh, and we're sitting, you know, out in tents in the Andes mountains eating that. And it was just like a very like, profound and we're drinking a little red wine too so it's just like a very wonderful setting um and then in you know nepal we ate dalbat which is like a very traditional sherpa meal almost every not every day but we ate it very frequently um but i just find that found that like food was just this really great way of connecting with people um and uh their cultures and getting to sit around a table with people was really really special um, but yeah, I would definitely say like tree kangaroo is like way by far like the craziest thing I ever ate. Um, so not, not too many like exotic things, just interesting local meals that were usually very, very delicious. <laughs> and what about like the animals and the insects? You talk a bit, in, I think in the same episode as the tree kangaroo about this, the, these bushes that looked as though they're covered in cotton candy to only to realize like, oh, that's 
spider webs. Like what yeah. what kind of creatures and insects and stuff did you encounter along the way? Yeah, I feel like Carson's Pyramid like just check, you know, checks the boxes for all of those because it was just like the most interesting jungle place that we ever were. Um, Kilimanjaro was pretty cool too. You know, we got to see a lot of monkeys at the beginning of the climb, which was cool. Uh, but unfortunately, for most of the climbs, you're just so high in elevation that like there aren't aren't really animals. You know, um, we did get to see an Andes condor when we were in Argentina, which was just amazing. Seeing this huge bird, you know, soaring over us while we're hiking up the trail. Um, and then Nepal, it's not wild wildlife, but you're hiking on the trail with these beautiful yaks that are you know adorned in some kind of uh, I don't know what you call it, but like decor i don't know but they're beautifully like uh kind of made up these yaks what you're walking on the trail and you have to move out of the way of um but yeah you know i think one of the craziest things though um as far as like wildlife and animals was seeing birds at camp four on everest so that's you know uh twenty six thousand feet high and there were birds like going up there and, and scrounging in the trash and stuff and then they take off and go back down and um, just the fact that there were birds just like chilling up there was like kind of mind blowing a little bit. Um, not many birds, but a couple. <laughs> so that was pretty wild. That That is wild. So Chris, as Drew mentioned a few minutes ago, the show doesn't only feature you. We also hear from, we hear from Jess. We hear from your climbing guide, Ryan Waters. We hear from Save One Life founder, Lori Kelly. We hear from experts on global health. We hear from your physical therapist, Laura Singer-Fox. Um, we hear from your former employer and wilderness educator, Pat Torrey. We hear from a lot of people throughout. One of the people that we hear from is a fellow climber who was with you for a number of your Seven Summits climbs, Vivica. And I'm going to, again, play a quick clip from the final summit. It's a conversation that you're in with Vivica about your experiences in Russia while you were there to climb Mount Elbrus. Let's take a listen. After a short flight from Moscow to Mineralny Vodi, it was the first time being on a plane and seeing no English anywhere, we piled into a van to head towards our hotel near the mountain. One of my favorite parts of visiting new places is gazing out of the window of a vehicle. I love peering down back alleyways or catching that glimpse into a local shop. These momentary sights of people going about their lives without me being a distraction. But driving in Russia, it was a little different. We were flying down the highway with cars passing each other on the center dividing line. Then, out of nowhere, every car pulled over and a convoy of Land Rovers flew up the middle of the I asked the driver, what was that? And he casually said, Chechnyan leader. I suddenly had a recollection of the images of tanks on the TV when I was younger. Chris, did you or did any of the climbers that you were with on any of these climbs ever feel as though that you were in danger, not because of the mountains, but because of the situations on the ground in the countries that you were in? Um, I would say that was the only moment where... where I had a realization of like, there's this bigger, you know, um, I guess geopolitical landscape around me that I, I hadn't really considered or thought about um, in many places. And I think, you know, um, that was that was de- definitely different. It was very in your face, like, uh, you know, tanks and, and, and people with armed guns along the side of the road was definitely uh, pretty profound. Um, as far as the other countries I climbed and I didn't ever feel really in danger um, you know, even in parts of Africa. But I think it's also just being comfortable with traveling in those kinds of areas. Uh, And just you're always a little bit more aware of your surroundings, where you're at, um, and just attentive to what's going on around you. 
Um, but, you know, we were always generally on these climbs with a team of people too. So when you're traveling around, you're with a group of people, um, a lot of them from different places in the world. So it's really, you know, you, you become very close and you feel very comfortable traveling around with them and their different experiences help you feel comfortable in different situations. And then traveling with Vibica, like she, she's been everywhere and seen some, some really actual dangerous situations. So if she's like really comfortable and calm, like I, if she, if she doesn't, tells me I don't need to be worried, like, I'm good. Um, if she told me to be worried, I would be very worried. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, she's she was a great person to travel with, though, just her perspective and how comfortable she was, like, immersing herself in, in local cultures without really worrying too much. But like I said, being very aware of her surroundings and, and what she was doing. So, um, yeah, there were some fun nights, like, going out and, and, and partying in local bars and clubs and stuff, which was pretty fun, but never any times that felt really dangerous or anything. <laughs> Good, good. Drew, what what are, are some of the stories that were most compelling to you um, about the mountains or Chris's journey? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the one that always really sticks with me is the, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's morbid to say, but the dead bodies on Everest were a thing that I remember hearing about and just reading about it and being like, what do you mean it was still clipped on the rope? Like I was, I, I mean, this like body was there was such a visceral thing because you, Everest right now, and Chris, you probably have more to say about it than I do about this, but it feels like Everest right now sometimes can be seen as kind of like a tourist destination where people honestly kind of go there who are kind of just going there just to climb. They don't quite have the right, the, the proper training. You know, like I'm not a mountain climber, I'm, but I do run marathons. And it does feel to me like people who are like, oh, I haven't trained for this, but I can just run it. And it's like, you will collapse. Like you will not be able to do it and it'll take you seven hours. I feel like that is kind of what it feels like for this Mount Everest uh, situation with the, the bodies. And like, what does that mean? Like just a visceral reminder of what it is that you're up against and what it is that you're actually risking in order to get to the top. That was one of the biggest stories for me that really, really um, hit home. Um and then the other one uh, was hearing about Denali and about being up on the... Uh, you know, uh, the the fresh snow and just being stuck there and, like, not being able to tell the person that you're with that we need to slow down. Because I have been there in in physical situations and social situations where I'm like, I don't feel comfortable doing this, but, you know, you, you have to keep doing it or else th- that, that, like, pride that you have and this, like... This, this worry that you'll be seen as like not as as fun or not as cool or not as physical as anyone else. Like it, it touches on so many other things. So both of those stories really stuck with me um, in a really profound way. Um, Kilimanjaro, I, the thing that stuck with me about Kilimanjaro was I said, oh, that sounds like one I could maybe do. I want to do that. So I'm going to try to maybe figure out a time to go <laughs> see if I can do Kilimanjaro at some point. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? Could he do it? Oh, totally. He could do it. No questions. <laughs> wow. All right. That's quite a vote of confidence there, Drew. If he's trained for a marathon, he's, he's got it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Fair enough, then. Um, well, so, Chris, I, I want to come back to you. And we mentioned earlier that Jess, your wife, is also featured on the show and in conversation with you um, really th- throughout the season. And they're intimate conversations between the two of you, between a husband and wife, partners, best friends, um, and and they come through really powerfully on the final summit, 
which is available anywhere that you get your podcasts, by the way. And you're really candid about the impact of hemophilia on you and, and your lives and the impact of this mission and these climbs. Let's take a little listen from the show and then I have a question for you. So Chris has struggled a lot with feeling less than because of his hemophilia. I think it started when he was young, having it pointed out, disclosed. I think sometimes he felt like he was made a spectacle, you know, when he'd have to sit out for gym class or walking through the halls on crutches one day and then he'd not on crutches the next day and kids would call him a faker. And so I think there's something there of feeling like (laughs) maybe he's had to prove that he does have an injury or prove that he does have this illness. He's had to, you know, like, no, I really am hurt. There's that component of it, which I don't know that many people have really considered. So Chris, let's start kind of broadly. So how's your mental health doing these days? And you mentioned earlier that you kind of wish you had some of the vocab and ways of framing and describing things earlier during the film that that you do now. Now you maybe have some more words to describe stuff. Um, So I'm curious from a mental health perspective in particular, is there anything that you would like, that you've learned and would like to share with the listeners and bleeding disorders community? Yeah, you know, um, it's funny, the question is like, how is your mental health doing these days? I, f- I feel like every day is different, you know? <laughs> Who knows, sure. especially with some of the A little bit of a lazy question. On. Let's be honest. A yeah. little bit of a lazy question, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I would, I would say overall, though, I w- my mental health has probably been the best it's been in a very long time. And I think it's because, um, you know, I've gotten some, some significant health from, help from a professional, uh, you know, seeing a therapist consistently for a long period of time really helps me understand what some of this and where some of the anxiety and depression come from within me, uh, in general. And so now those days where I do have those days, dark days, you know, those days filled with anxiety or that story of not feeling good enough, um, not feeling are feeling less than other people, I can kind of take a step back and use those tools that that, that um, my therapist has given me to not make those feelings go away because that, that's not what's going to happen, but to just be a little more accepting of like, it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have those thoughts once in a while. Um, and you don't need to like beat yourself up um, for having a bad day. So just having a lot more empathy for myself and compassion for myself when, when those thoughts arise has been really crucial. Um, and then, you know, being comfortable taking a step back and taking a break um, and really focusing on my mental health has been so, so vastly important. You know, um, it's, it's something just like, you know, exercising physically. It's something you have to work at constantly, you know, um, I notice when I when I don't practice mindfulness or I don't you know practice these exercises that my therapist has given me, I, I fall back into those old habits and I and I, I I find the anxieties like overwhelming me more and more frequently, and so you know making sure I, I make that a priority in my life has been really really important, um, and I think you know with with the the stress in our world today, especially with with some of the recent you know, news and, and challenges that have come out. Um, I think that's been something I've really had to rely on and, and realize, like, like I said, uh, it's okay to have bad days and it's okay to prioritize yourself and your mental health. So I think that's been big. Chris, what was it like for you and Jess to kind of 
relive some of this, um, especially when it comes to mental health, her mental health? What was it? What was it like? Yeah, it, it's it's always fun to, to to speak with Jess about her experiences, and and you know we've always had a pretty open dialogue. Um, you know, I don't know if she ever really shared some of her concerns though. So. And and I guess some of the interviews were I wasn't in, a part of, so it was the first time listening to the podcast where I got to hear Jess's perspective on stuff. Um, so that's been interesting to to hear. Um, but I think she really captures a lot of those feelings and what was going on in my head uh, perfectly because we we uh, <laughs> yeah we know each other very very well. Um, She's got your number. She does. She does. <laughs> um, but it's always fun to like yeah reminisce with her like because this journey was was you know, just as much her journey as it was mine. Um, we've both grown up in, uh, a lot in this, I don't know how many years we've been dating. Oh, I should know that. Um, quite a few years that we've been <laughs> dating <laughs> and married. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, it was really fun to have that experience with her. Can you guys edit in the, can you edit in the, the right amount of years? <laughs> I was just about to say, we're not going to edit that out. <laughs> Wait, Chris, when is your anniversary? We're oh. we were married in 2015, but we've been you know together since 2009. Was there a particular date in 2015? Yeah, October 2nd. Okay, there you go. So you know your anniversary. I think you're in the. I court. got my. I know that date. Yeah, but <laughs> well, you say that like it. That, you know, that's not true all the time of everybody. <laughs> um, Drew, I want to I want to turn to you for a moment here. Mental health is a critical topic, but it's also quite a popular and trendy one and there's a lot of stuff out there and there's a lot of ways in which it's discussed and uh, you know some more tactfully and with depth more depth than than others I'm curious to know from you what were your thoughts about how to most meaningfully weave in Chris and Jess's mental health experiences as part of the show without it becoming overbearing or taking over the show or feeling as though we were trying to just do something that was kind of trendy or popular Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, so I've worked a lot in the comedy space of mental health. I wrote, wrote on a show called the Chris Gethard show for a long time. And one of the the main topics we would talk a lot about on that show was mental health and, um, you know, in therapy and making sure you're taking care of yourself and things like that. I think one of the things about this show that I really appreciated and uh, what I really appreciate, uh, appreciate about Chris in general is like, there's a nice balance of physical health and mental health that kind of like that balance each other out because I think I think there's a common uh, a common thing that happens where a lot of people will uh, brush aside mental health in favor of physical health and be like I'm just not exercising enough or I'm just not taking care of my body that's what's the most important thing or like no I just need to go clear my head uh, and what oftentimes that means is that you're pushing back a lot of the mental health stuff and not actually addressing it in favor of, uh, you know, getting ripped and looking good. Uh, that's not always what it is, but, you know, I think it is like a little bit of making sure that like you need to, you know, it goes toe to toe. Like your, your mind is a part of your body and they're all connected. And so there is like a lot of um, things that aren't discussed enough about how connected uh, we all are uh, internally and externally. And I think one of the things that I wanted to make sure of in this show was, you know, showing both sides of it, showing that, like, 
you may have this physical prowess and you may be able to achieve these huge things, but that's not going to solve the problem of your mental, uh, of any kind of mental health issues. And I think that's an important aspect to look into and an important thing to highlight, um, uh, especially considering, you know, the, the people that we see online or the people that we see who are physical uh uh, influencers, and even when you look at like popular sports right now in the NBA and the NFL, a lot more uh, athletes are coming forward and saying, "No, we have to deal with our mental health right now." You know, Simone Biles, uh, famously in the in the Olympics, um, oh geez, was it mm-hmm. two years ago already or last year? I can't remember when. I think so, but yeah. like maybe two years, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that it's a very frank discussion that needs to be happening, and. Um, from a storytelling perspective, I, I never thought of it as like, oh yeah, we're tapping into something that's hot right now. Um, I think it's hot right now because it's something that hasn't been discussed at length for a long, long time and hasn't been discussed um, seriously for a long, long time. Um, and I think there's just, uh, I think it's good that we're finally getting rid of this idea that if you have any kind of down days or or mental health like problems, just stuff it in the back and get over it. You'll be fine. I think it's good that we're talking about it and discussing it because we can't run from these problems. We have to face them head on. And I think any way that we can communicate that to every different um, group out there uh, that needs to hear like, oh, you know, it's not just physical, it's also mental. Like we have to take care of ourselves as a whole. And I think that's important. So I never really thought of it as, as like, this is the hot topic. I thought of it more as like, no, this is a real story that Chris went through and like a real challenge that Chris was working through. We have to talk about that honestly and openly and also tie that into how it helped both his his uh, physical journey and his, and his like, for lack of a better term, spiritual journey uh, or like way to get more mm-hmm. like uh, global health initiatives um, uh, together. I say spiritual more as... Um, Mm. Not as religious, but more as like a uh, like hero with a thousand faces kind of uh, storytelling, like Luke Skywalker journey, I guess. But yeah, something like that. Ooh, Chris, oh, yeah. you just got compared to Luke Skywalker. <laughs> That's a win. That's a win for the day. Wow, <laughs> what a drop, Amy. That was impressive. I didn't see Luke Skywalker coming up there at the end. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, We only have a couple of minutes uh, left. So I think maybe we have time for probably two more questions. Amy, I'll I'll defer to you first. Is there any final question that you'd like to ask of either Chris and or Drew? Well, I guess uh, no question, just more of a comment. I I think, um, you know, Chris's climbs and especially Everest and the the making of Vomitor Blood was such a defining time for uh, the hemophilia community. And it was such a joy to um, kind of relive that in a way of what that felt like. Um, it was really, you know, great to hear your circle talk about it. And um, I guess in, in that regard, Chris, just to ask you, um, listening back to it, what are some of the things that you learned that you didn't really uh, know or, you know, what what was something that you learned by listening back? Oh, man, that's a good question. (laughs) Uh, It's funny, I I think some of the language that Pat Torrey used uh, was funny, uh, and I can't remember, like, the specifics. I just listened to the episode, uh, Carson's Pyramid, yesterday, and just the way he phrased something just made me chuckle. And I was like, oh, that's very Pat Torrey. But like, um, and you know what? I, I conducted that interview and I learned things from Pat. I was like, I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
this was such a fun project. Yeah, um, and it was just, it was really fun to like get to, you know, I think, I don't know if it's made it into many episodes, but during most of the interviews that I had, I just asked people, you know, like, where were you when, when you heard that I made it? Or, you know, with uh, my physical therapist, uh, Laura Singer-Fox, she, she helped me like get back for Denali. And like, I don't think I've ever actually talked to her about what that meant for me and like how thankful I was for her uh, to be there and help me, help me, you know, achieve that goal. Um, so it's really fun to like get to have more in-depth discussions with some people that I haven't talked to about about this in particularly. Um, like Denali, yeah, it was like a mountain, but then it, like kind of we just moved on from it, you know. Um, so it was fun to go back and also think about all these other climbs that I did that I haven't got as much attention because um, they were huge moments in my life. Uh, each every single one of them was was important and profound for me and, and to like, yeah, get to spend a little bit of moment, you know, a moment on each one was really special. That conversation with Laura was um, amongst many things that stood out to me as a listener, something that felt special. It felt like there was points of connection that hadn't been discussed before. Exactly what you're speaking to as a listener, I experienced, it was very cool. You know, it's a moment as a listener to a podcast that I really feel let in behind a curtain when it's like, oh, this is this is about a major moment in really both of your lives that you haven't discussed before. Like it's such a treat as a podcast listener to be let in on those kind of conversations. And I suppose with that in mind, the last thing I want to ask each of you to respond to, and and Drew, maybe we'll start with you. Um, so there's seven episodes. They range 20 to 25, six, seven minutes, somewhere in there. Very digestible, really well produced and directed by Keith Corneluck. Lots of great audio design and storytelling from the post-production team in general. I think they're fantastic listens, but I also know that not everybody who's listening to this episode of Bloodstream right now has listened yet to the final summit, but they've made it to this point, the end of the interview with you guys, they've heard about all of this stuff. Maybe they're now just about ready to click play or click subscribe uh, after they listen. What would you say to get them to make that final effort to click play, to click subscribe and engage with the final summit? What is your call to action to listen to the final summit? We'll start with you, Drew. You know, I think one of the things that I'd say is this podcast more than anything shows that uh, shows that any any task that you go for, like whether it be climbing a mountain, means you're not only alone. You have a whole team and a whole community around you, and it's a real story of your entire life. Listening to every one of his episodes and all the people that were involved, whether it's Laura Fox or uh, or Pat or uh, Jess, like all these people who are in part of Chris's life. This is all their story too. And so I think it's it's a great story that's kind of a heartwarming, wonderful story, not just about one like one man's journey up a bunch of mountains, but a whole community helping someone get to the top of the mountain and helping him achieve his dreams. And that it's not just one man's uh, quest, it is an entire uh, village. It's It doesn't take one man, it takes a whole village. And I think it's kind of a heartwarming, wonderful, but... Uh, but also like challenges some uh, preconceptions you might have about both bleeding disorders and mountain climbing. And I think it's really an eye-opening, wonderful story for everybody, bleeding disorder or not. Fantastic. Well, I know I'm going to go listen to it. You got me. That compelled me. Uh, Chris, what would you say? What, what's your call for people to listen? Well, I was I was really happy that Drew went first on that one. Because <laughs> I could just say like ditto, right? Um yeah, uh, I think that, that's that's a definitely a huge part of it. You know, this 
it's it, for me, it's very personal, obviously, like getting to revisit all of this and, and tell these stories more in depth has just been really, really interesting um, and really good, you know, in retrospect. But I think f- for me, I, I just hope people can understand how life can take you in just such different directions than you ever anticipated and present you with these unique opportunities. And, you know, I think it's in the last episode, you know, with Karsten's Pyramid, just about saying yes to the mess, you know, like you might not have every detail figured out about where you want to be in five to 10 years, but just being open to the experience of life because it's amazing what adventures and uh, experiences that you can have along the way uh, if you just kind of allow yourself to be a part of it and, and not not so focused and worried about um, the little minute details, you know. Um, I hope that people pick up with that. And I hope I hope that really, you know, people that are struggling with maybe anxiety or depression hear this and maybe they're surprised that I struggle with it still to this day, but I hope maybe somebody reaches out for help um, from this podcast. And then finally, I like, I hope people listen to this podcast and, and gain a little bit of insight about, you know, what health equity looks like around our world and, and maybe afterwards do some research about what they can do to help. You know, they can visit saveonelife.org or they can just, you know, uh, visit all sorts of websites, get, get involved and understand what this global community is that we, we live in and, and how, we can, how we can be a part of change, so... And, and we didn't mention, and I don't want to take for granted that people know, Chris is the executive director of Save One Life now. So when you give to Save One Life or engage with Save One Life, that is the organization that Chris is leading as its executive director. So saveonelife.org for more information and for opportunities to give, to contribute to people with hemophilia and their families all around the world. And the final summit from Bloodstream Media, a podcast for adventurers, bleeders, and anyone who's ever chased a dream. It's available anywhere that you'll find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so forth. There's a link in the program notes. And though I mentioned it at the top, it bears repeating. The final summit is made possible through advertising support from Genentech and Tremo Pharmaceuticals. We could not have made the show without them, and we appreciate their support of the final summit. Drew Johnson, Chris Bombardier, thank you so much for joining Amy and I. Awesome job with the final summit. What a cool project. I'm so glad we got to work on it together. Drew, is a great way to get to work with you again. The connection between you and Chris and the mountain history and how that's like why you were born in Washington State is like, I didn't know that. So just amazing the way this came together. I'm so happy to have gotten to work on this with you guys. And I look forward to the next opportunity that we have to collaborate. Yeah, thank you, you so too. much, Patrick. So excited. Big thanks to Chris and Drew. I hope you enjoyed their shares and their stories and their discussion of spiderwebs and other things. Um, And that audio from the (laughs) final summit, which, by the way, you should go listen to as soon as you have finished today's episode of Bloodstream. And it was fun, wasn't it? That conversation was very fun. I thought it was fun. I think it was fun. I hope you guys thought it was fun. All right, everybody, let's head now over to The Well with Jessica Lauren Richmond. She is the co-host of Flow. And this week's episode of The Well features aging and changing, which is a complimentary mm-hmm. uh, topic um, from last episode's Let's Talk, which I'm very excited about because aging and changing is something that is instrumental to all of us. Unrelatable. Our- oh. Un- <laughs> Unrelatable. But I would love to hear uh, Jessica's take. So anyway, everybody, here's the well. 
Ow! My back. <sighs> I need a nap. It's no fun getting older. Speak for yourself. This morning, I had a sty in my eye. It's a major bummer. Pretty gross. I let my dog lick my face too much. What can I do? I'm in my late 30s. Thank you very much. And I know how to handle a sty. Warm compress, rest... In my 20s, I did not know such things. I still had to learn about what happens to eyelids when you get an uncomfortable piece of dirt or debris stuck in the delicate skin texture. I went to doctors, read up on the situation, the sty situation, and now, from my experience, I can more easily manage to move through this discomfort. Here's the thing about getting older. Oh, my back. I need a nap. <laughs> it's no fun getting older. Speak for yourself. And welcome to The Well. We are standing by a wishing well. Speaking for herself on the topic of age is Esther Bensian, 97 years old, my paternal grandma. So you feel old, but what do you mean by old? Do you mean pain? You feel hurt all over. Mm-hmm. You feel like, oh, you feel like old. You don't feel like jumping around or, you know, doing things, you know what I mean? You just feel tired. So you feel tired? Tired. Tired. I asked her what it means to age from her point of view. That's what feeling old is. Because otherwise, if you don't feel tired... There are days you get up and you go, oh boy, let's see what I can accomplish today. There's so much I have to do, you know? Those are the days you feel like you're Kid again, mm. you know what I mean. Not a kid per se, but you, you feel much younger than you did when you didn't feel like doing anything. You know, when they tell you, "Oh, you're ninety, or you're sixty, or you're 50 it's just a number. Just, just a number. It's about how how well you feel. It's according to how you feel. Mm-hmm. Just a number. Mm-hmm. Like if you feel well or not, if you feel sick, if you feel tired, if you feel like you don't have energy, if you don't have motivation, then you feel old. But if you have those things, it doesn't matter what age you are. The hypothesis is you're not tired because you're old. You're getting old because you're tired. Let us not seek the fountain of youth here at the well. If oldness is being tired and uninspired, then age is about growth. Seeking inspiration. A flower does not unbloom. Why in the world would anyone want to be 22 again? Realistically, what did you like about ages 13 through 30 the most? You're about to hear some audio from Matt and Mike, who spoke with Amy and Patrick at HFA this year. I feel like that I am a Ferrari at heart Mm. and I have a pinto body because of hemophilia. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, you know, my joints... You know, it's, it's great because every generation gets better and better. All right, Mike. If it all comes back to energy, the Ferrari at heart, then when someone says they still feel like a kid, just everything hurts, I can't help but think, okay, everything hurts all the time. Okay, do you remember your teeth growing in? That hurt. Bones aging hurts. Like I say, I, I tell everybody it's just a number. Yeah. And you can't tell me, oh, I feel like 80. You don't know what 80 is. Yeah, no. Not till you get there. What does 80 feel like? I have no clue. Uh, you're 90. I'm 97. You're 97, I mean. I remember, I remember going to the gym until I was 90, 94. Yeah. I wish I was still going, but I can't. What do you say to stretches? Look, I can't do now what I did then. That's the difference. I can't get on the floor. 
If I get on the floor, who's going to pick me up? <laughs> There's always been pain. It's just different at 8 than at 80. I still feel like a kid, but everything hurts. Ugh, sorry, then you kind of did it wrong. Use your time to prepare for the pain that's coming. With chronic pain, pain is not new. When you're used to pain, you have an advantage. Managing pain is not new either. What has been my experience with aging during my life? Um, getting older, uh, it's interesting because I feel like I'm getting better and more healthy the older I get. Um, I feel like I'm in the best health of my life, and it's not. I think having a disadvantage of having hemophilia, like in a sense, has become an advantage by like, you know, like, oh, okay, I've got this problem, I bleed, all the other kids can run around and do these activities. I have to compensate for it. I have to think about things in the future, like insurance and healthcare, and make sure I'm taking my medicine on time. And that's made me more responsible. And so in that sense, I've already stayed like where other people might like, okay, you're turning 45, you're turning 50, you've got arthritis, now you can't do anything. No, you totally can and if you're older than you were yesterday, that's good news. If you're not getting happier as you get older, then you're Thank you, Jessica, for bringing us to and from the well again. And thanks again to Chris and Drew for joining us in the interview segment as always, I want to thank our sponsors, Genentech and CSL Bearing, for their support of this episode, as well as, of course, our presenting sponsor, Takeda, for making this and all episodes of the Bloodstream Podcast possible. Amy Board, uh, we are back again on July 22nd. What can listeners expect to hear on that episode? We have a phenomenal episode. We interview authors of a recently published article entitled Sexual Issues in People with Hemophilia, Awareness and Strategies for Overcoming Communication Barriers. Oh, I kind of want to run and hide, but I won't. It's fantastic. Fantastic. It is fantastic. <laughs> I cannot recommend it enough. Wow, I couldn't think of the word. Did I recommend. tell you I'm getting a book? Uh, Greg is You are? You're getting book. that book? Yes. So we did one of the interviews. There's going to be two interviews. We've done one of them already with the lead author, Greg Blamey, who is outstanding and Canadian, sometimes not mutually <laughs> exclusive, often not, right? Shout out to Keith Cornelick, our producer. Mm -hmm. And he talks about in the interview that you'll hear on the 22nd, the book that he helped create, because it was like, there's no good books on, there's no good literature on this. And when it was done, I was sort of like, man, I'd like to get a copy of one of those. That'd be cool. But I didn't want to ask. Within three minutes, I had an email from him. He's like, what's your address? Like, Yay! So I'm getting a book, uh, which I don't know. Maybe that means that next time we can we can do some showing and pick, maybe there'll be pictures. Maybe oh. we can have social content. Who knows what could happen once the book arrives. Books are powerful. Going that, to be great. That's the bottom line. <laughs> <laughs> it's a phenomenal, uh, phenomenal episode. And we can't wait for you guys to hear it here on Bloodstream next time. Next time. Yeah, I'm excited for that. That's on the 22nd. And with that, that is all for this episode. A reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen and to share this episode with family, friends, colleagues, strangers, your postal carrier, your neighbor, maybe somebody that you met on a bus, maybe somebody that you haven't met yet, but that you might meet soon. And you're like, you look like a podcast listener. Listen to the Bloodstream Podcast. 
These are all the kinds of choices that you can make. But the point is, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe and make sure to tell others to do the same wherever y'all get your podcasts. Also, if you have a bleeding disorders or a healthcare topic that you'd like us to discuss more, or maybe you have an expert or a guest that you're just dying to hear from. I mean, like dying to hear from. Or if you want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for our podcasts or our films, you should email us at mailbag at blissmedia.com. Or you can connect with us on social media because we're everywhere. You're going to find all of us. You're going to find Bloodstream Media. You're going to find Patrick. You're going to find Amy. You're going to find everybody on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're also on LinkedIn. That's it. Shout out to all the committed LinkedIn users out there. I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am your other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.